So the obligation of someone who introduces and more or less presides in an overflow uh, event uh, is to get out of the way fairly uh, uh, fairly rapidly. The occasion, as you all know, is, is the publication of, 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 of a very compelling and challenging uh, small book called How Democratic is the American Constitution? And in a list of the, the publications of the, of the books of the author of this book, uh, Robert Dahl, a sterling professor of political science emeritus at Yale and uh, former president of the American Political Science Association and many other things. Uh, this looks like book 23, but in many ways I think it's just the expansion of book one, which is a cumulative. Uh, a cumulative. No, I, th I think there's always there's always a, a straw or a toothpick on each new on, on each new structure, and this one has a whole series of issues that um, that one wouldn't know uh, about. Uh, Otherwise, so uh, it's a lovely book and a very uh, and a very welcome occasion to have Bob say a little bit about it and to uh, allow some people to uh, 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 be uh, nice or obstreperous as the, as the spirit moves them. Uh, and the commentators from uh, Bob's left are Akil Reed Amar, uh, the professor of law at Yale, and I gather in a earlier incarnation in a volume that I saw highlighted, an undergraduate a student of Bob Dahl's, and, uh, uh, and Wilson Carey McWilliams, who has such distinctions as being a, uh, a parent of a Princeton graduate student, and, a, uh, and known for many, many things, one of which is uh, very significant to any student of American politics, and that is his 1970 uh, three book, The Idea of Fraternity uh, in America. And our former colleague defected to Columbia Law School, Jeremy uh, Waldron, Waldron, whose works include uh, liberal rights, the dignity of legislation, law, and disagreements. So um, uh, I think with some persuasion, Bob has agreed to say a few things initially and then and then engage in give and take with the, with the discussions. I should say, perhaps, that uh, in the middle of the afternoon, I uh, said to Fred, would four or five minutes be okay? And he thought that wasn't quite enough. So <laughs> heaven knows uh, what you're going to have to put up with, with me. But I want to begin by expressing... Uh, my thanks to uh, the people who have made this uh, occasion uh, possible, including uh, Larry Bartels, whose uh, center has, has sponsored this, um, and the uh, panelists, of course. Uh, and uh, I would have to say to the hospitality of Fred and Barbara. Well, and, 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 and we have the good fortune of having Robbie George and the Madison. Uh, uh, exactly, the exactly. yes, of course. I shouldn't omit them. Science, yeah. Now, since the, a major purpose of this uh, small volume of mine is to stimulate discussion, and that's what I'm looking forward to uh, today and not any further contribution that I may have to, uh, 
to make uh, to it. Uh, I will say, say uh, a bit, uh, uh, and, and some of this is, uh, perhaps all of it is going to be repetitive for those of you who may have, have read this little book. It came about, as I mentioned in the, in the, in the preface, when I was invited to give the Castle Lectures, a relatively new series of endowed lectures at uh, Yale, and um, I thought about it for a while. Uh, do I have a subject? And this thought occurred to me, yes, a democratic critique of the American Constitution, uh, which the uh, sponsors of the lecture series were enthusiastic about. Um, and it was the title, actually, the working title until very near the end, when it was read by one uh, Fred Greenstein, and commented on, and among other things, he suggested its uh, present title, which I do think is an improvement. Uh, uh, the, uh, and as uh, Fred has already pointed out uh, over many years of, of uh, writing and a great deal, no doubt, of repetition and draw, drawing and redrawing on the same uh, sources, uh, I uh, uh, re- realized or came to believe anyway that uh, there was in the, all of what I had written over many years that could be pulled together, uh, various aspects of it could be pulled together and turned into this small volume, which is essentially what I did. It was kind of fun, as a matter of fact, uh, to, uh, to uh, do that. I delivered the lectures in October of the year 2000, uh, and uh, the timing in one way was quite excellent, <laughs> and in another way it was quite poor, as it turned out. Uh, we'll see in the long run. The timing was excellent because, uh, as you may remember, that was just before a critical election, and uh, part of the uh, of the uh, one of the lectures dealt with the the frailties of the electoral college, and it, I even went uh, on so boldly as to predict that that might be one more crisis, which was then confirmed in that election. I felt very good about that. <laughs> of course, uh, by the, <laughs> the rest of us did. <laughs> by the time the uh, book uh, came out. Uh, 9-11 had occurred, and the surge of uh, patriotic uh, feeling, some of which I myself participate in, uh, 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 made me think maybe this is terrible timing. It comes out at a time when willingness perhaps to take a critical attitude towards our uh, Constitution uh, may be uh, numbed uh, by our feelings of uh, patriotism. Now I'm less sure, some months after that, whether this may not indeed be an appropriate time. In any case, there it is. There's nothing more that I can do about it. Now, as I have already said, and as I make clear in the book, my intentions were not to come out with prescriptions for change so much as to raise the the threshold of, of awareness so that we could begin talking about the Constitution. And it has occurred to me uh, more recently, as I began to think about my remarks today, I didn't, didn't, I wouldn't, it wouldn't have been appropriate to have introduced this, but I thought about Weber's famous uh, three types of authority. I haven't gone back to check out the text, but you remember them. The one of them is the, the traditional authority, where it simply rests upon this is the way we have done things. Think of the British Constitution, probably, as a as, a, as, as, as one example where traditional authority has played an extremely important role, though not only that. Then a now much abused term, a much misused term, a charismatic authority, where it depends upon divine grace 
uh, uh, being in the presence of the of of the, of the lawgiver or of the or of the person who is who is uh, bearing this uh, uh, authority. I think uh, I'm old enough to remember back in the days before John F. Kennedy when uh, when charisma and charismatic uh, uh, authority were. Uh, very obscure notions that only a few sociologists <laughs> knew about. And I think there must have been some journalists trained in the sociology departments here or elsewhere who uh, began then to apply the term. So that now it means nothing more, as far as I can tell, than a very popular and, and, and uh, likable uh, person. Anyway, charismatic. A, 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 the authority depends upon having divine uh, grace. And then there's rational legal with the famous subtype of bureaucratic authority, which uh, Weber wrote about. Now, nominally, it's occurred to me the American Constitution is rational legal, but it really ain't. It's partly charismatic in the sense of charisma, in the sense of attributing to it almost the authority of a divine uh, uh, document. Uh, divinely inspired and therefore one that we should obey because it also traditional it's original this is the way we do things this is the way we have done things and we should continue to obey it what I would like to see is to change the discussion from those two types to thinking of it as a rational document intended to achieve certain ends of which of course uh, Edward my uh, convictions and beliefs, uh, democracy is the one that it should be aimed in a rational way to achieve. The, however, that may be, as I uh, have said several times now, my aim is primarily to stimulate uh, discussion. The um, uh, I want to transform the nature of the discussion as far as that is the case and as far as it's possible to, to change it from one in which we look upon the Constitution as a sacred document, as an icon, uh, created, uh, again, here the word charismatic comes in uh, to, to play, by a group of extraordinarily endowed people, as they were, indeed, they were, they were for their time, of great talent. But that was 200 years ago, and we know much more about constitutions now than they could possibly have known. I use there early on the rather provocative uh, uh, analogy. Uh, there's no question, I think, I don't happen to be a great admirer of Leonardo da Vinci's uh, arts, as I know, again, this is a descending point of view, but there's no question about his genius. But would any of us want to strap on those wings that he invented for flying? And, well, jump out of this window or even a higher one? No, the answer is not. Uh, or I use the example of, uh, of uh, Benjamin Franklin. Uh, would we want him to, uh, to to check out the wiring in our house? No, we'd hire an electrician, maybe someone with no more than a high school uh, education. Would we want to fly anywhere today in the Wright Brothers airplane? No. Knowledge and understanding move on, and it seems to me we need to be able to take that into account. And the framers were necessarily limited by the knowledge available to them at the end of the 18th century. And however gifted they were, like Leonardo was in his time, there were limits 
to their knowledge, including the fact there had never been before anything like quite an appropriate model and, uh, 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 for a large uh, republic. And as we all uh, know, the constitution that they so much admired, virtually all of them admired it, I have been unable to find it. Uh, a critical word about the British Constitution. There may be buried there somewhere, and maybe uh, Kiel has turned it up. But they were great admirers of the British Constitution. What they didn't know and couldn't know is that within uh, 40 years, that Constitution would be fundamentally transformed into a parliamentary uh, system. <coughs> they had no way of knowing that, no way of foreseeing that, no way of understanding the differences between what they were creating and what the uh, British Constitution would achieve. The, um, the, uh, and I, I also think it's worth keeping in mind that all of the democratic countries that it seems to me it's reasonable to compare our experience with either explicitly or implicitly rejected the American model. It's unique. There's nothing, nothing like it. And they particularly re rejected the presidential system. The presidential system was widely adopted, of course, in certain parts of the uh, of, of the world, and particularly in Latin America, where, however, quite arguably, as people like Juan Lins have, have argued, it has been a source uh, of, uh, of uh, creating preconditions for breakdown in Latin America, that it's, a, it's not a good model where it has been adopted. I don't want to try to uh, justify that. My point is that the older established democratic countries with whom, with which it is worth comparing uh, the United States have not and indeed implicitly or explicitly as I said rejected this uh, model. Finally there's no evidence that I can find that in any way the American Constitution has led to superior performance on any one of a great variety of measures even including uh, additional ones uh, that I don't include in the, in the book itself. The, um, so what are we to do? That's the question that I must say I find most uh, uh, difficult. First of all, we need to talk, as I've already said, we need to discuss it. We need to think about it. We need to think about what are its purposes, what are its functions, what can we do, what are the possibilities. I'm pessimistic that we can achieve much by way of, of uh, constitutional reform through amendment, that we can make it more democratic because of the nature of the, of the uh, amendment process and the role of the, particularly of the small states in the, uh, in the amendment process. Um, but there are creative possibilities, and today you're going to hear at least one of these uh, from Akhil Ambar. Uh, there are creative possibilities within the limits of the Constitution. One of them is the possibility, this ingenious possibility of doing something about the Electoral uh, College. And I think there are available, if we give thought to it, and we think of political equality as the fundamental value in a democratic system, the achievement of equality as citizens, not in other ways necessarily, but achieving equality of citizens, which means equality uh, not just of rights and not just of, of duties, not just of opportunities, but of political resources as well. That's a daunting task. It's a, an extraordinary challenge. But I think that's the challenge that we face if we 
continue to believe, as I'm almost certain we will, in the fundamental values of a democratic order, then we must find ways by which our citizens can be in the political domain, maybe not elsewhere, that's perhaps impossible, uh, far more equal as citizens than they ever have been uh, and that they are at present, and I fear as they are likely to be in the short run of the future. So that's the challenge that I would throw out to all of you, the torchbearers of the future. Thank you. Why don't we go in alphabetical order, and, and I think it's just you presenter's choice as to how you're going to proceed and what perspective, and you could do it from the rostrum, or you can do it from here. Maybe in the spirit of informality, if you can all hear me, I'll just uh, offer a few uh, reactions to this really interesting um, do you all, and provocative is, book. Can you hear me back there? In the back row? Okay, I'll, I'll project then, because uh, I'd prefer to... You, you, you want to do it? I think okay. maybe okay. you'd better. Okay. I, I mean, the, um. the, the, the spirit of trade-off, yes. <laughs> Uh, so I'd like to talk about two uh, really interesting themes of Professor Dahl's uh, uh, latest work. And uh, one is this idea about looking to other constitutions as a benchmark uh, to assess our own. And uh, Professor Dahl gives us a list of about 20 other democratic nations and says, well, let's, let's compare our system to their systems and we'll see it's really unique in a bunch of ways. It has single-member district first-past-the-post, uh, which is um, two parties, which isn't true of, of most of the other uh, democracies around the world. It has a bicameral legislature. It has a presidentialist model. It has a constitutionalized federalism in ways that, that really don't quite have many obvious counterparts uh, across the world. And I wanted to add one additional uh, data set for political scientists and for American uh, constitutional scholars to look at as they, they measure the, the federal constitution. And uh, by the way, it really is wonderful not just to bring um, a Yale to, uh, to Princeton here, but to bring together political scientists and, and constitutional lawyers and historians and, and, and political philosophers. Uh, often uh, we are folks like uh, perhaps England and America divided by a common language, but we, we all, um, I think, uh, benefit from, from reading uh, the work of, of each other. Here's something that we can look at in addition to foreign nations. We can look at 50 state constitutions. Uh, and when we do, um, I think we see part of the reason that Americans find it difficult to imagine a parliamentary system, for example, because their state constitutions are based on a presidentialist model with an independently elected governorship. They don't see bicameral legislatures as particularly odd because unless they're Nebraskans, um, they, they, they see that at the state level as well as at the federal level. Um, this suggests possibility for, uh, for reform 
reform if you're going to try to ultimately acclimate Americans to proportional representation or other things. I think it needs to be worked out first on a state or local level, and then people can see it actually um, in operation. So that in terms of long-term strategies for uh, disentrenching um, this uh, uh, just um, uh, unthinking commitment to the, the federal um, model, that would just be one possibility to, to throw out. Let me now uh, briefly make a transition to the second and, and larger point that I'd like to make in reaction to a very interesting, I think powerful critique of the Electoral College in Professor Dahl's uh, book. What I've just said, um, and he says, look, the Electoral College violates a fundamental theoretical um, idea, desideratum, of, of one person, one vote. It weights votes unequally as between Wyoming and California. Um, and that's obviously a, a powerful point. And he makes a second very powerful point when he says, look, no one, if this is such a great invention, why isn't, does no foreign nation copy it? Uh, no, no, none of our peer uh, democratic nations has anything remotely like the Electoral College, even if they have a presidentialist system. France, for example, has a, a somewhat of a presidentialist system. There are, there are other regimes. Um, uh, but even if they have a presidentialist system, they don't have an Electoral College. I want to add um, two additional critiques to that. One, what I've just been talking about when you look at state constitutions. They all have presidentialist-like um, governors with a veto power not selected by the legislature, um, and yet um, with appointments powers look in a lot of ways rather similar there, uh, to uh, the, the, the president, um, but none of them are elected in a kind of intrastate electoral college. There's a slight qualification about uh, one or two states, Vermont and, 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 and Mississippi. But, but, um, but, but the overwhelming pattern is one person, one vote within a vast state like California or New York or Texas. We don't have an electoral college model within those states. And once you see that, that demolishes nine out of uh, ninety percent of the, the the fancy arguments for the electoral college. You know, uh, if it really works for the national presidency, why would, shouldn't California copy it? Um, uh, and it doesn't, and I think it shouldn't. Um, uh, but let me make a further critique of the Electoral College, given uh, th that I'm uh, at a very special place. Um, I want to tell you actually why we got the Electoral College. And it's a story, actually, in which Mr. Madison plays a very big role uh, fr uh, from this university. Um, and also a man named James Wilson plays a very big role. He's just from the, the state across the way, Pennsylvania. And he proposes in the Philadelphia Convention on June 1st. Here's what he says. He was almost unwilling to declare the mode he wished to take place, being apprehensive that it might appear chimerical. He would say, however, at least that in theory, he was for an election by the people. So he wants direct popular election of a president. Why don't we get that at Philadelphia? Why don't we have that today? The standard story that you've been told, I think, has really isn't quite right. Um, you've been told the story about how the Electoral College is a, an accommodation to small states. But if that's the story, look, w once you get the emergence of winner-take-all elections, which is very soon, 
actually big states have an advantage. And so of the 42, 43 presidents we've had, only two have come from small states, actually. Franklin Pierce from New Hampshire and Bill Clinton from Arkansas. So if it's about protecting small states, they did a bad job of it. Okay. Second, Madison says, this is June 30th at Philadelphia, he says, the, the difference, that um, the great divisions of interest in the United States do not lie between the large and small states. They lie between the northern and southern states, okay? And now, so he says, you know, the, the, that's the real political cleavage between east and west, north and south, not between big and small states. And so now we're beginning to see, interestingly, what perhaps maybe the Electoral College really was about. Um, but um, let me um, uh, offer one other um, argument that's often tried out for the Electoral College. Well, people, because why, why can you pick state governors but not pick, why can the people be trusted to do that but not pick a president? So it's not that they are opposed to democracy. Many of the Federalists, you know, uh, actually support a direct election of governors. And one thought is, well, you'll know, you, you'll know who the leaders of your state are, but it's hard to know who the leaders of a vast continent would be and, and, and what they stand for. Now, that was not an implausible argument at Philadelphia, but it quickly becomes implausible once you have the emergence of national political parties. Um, and yet the Electoral College isn't actually scrapped. And once you do get the emergence of national political parties, the Constitution is amended. This is a key point in the 12th Amendment, and the Electoral College is modified but not abandoned. Once you have national political parties, you know what they stand for. You know who, uh, which, which local slate of, of, of politicians the national uh, candidates are uh, allied with. And, and so you, an ordinary citizen, know enough to, to vote. So why did they uh, just tinker with the Electoral College rather than abandoning it once you have the rise of mass political parties? Once, um, and by the way, it's also clear in the elections of 1796 and 1800 that Madison was right, the real division in America is between North and South. And I'm actually going to just pass around a little um, Electoral College map so you can just take a look and see um, that uh, there are three things here, election of 1796, 1800, and 1860. They're all sharply North-South elections. So we'll just pass it around. So why did we get the Electoral College at Philadelphia and preserved at, in the 12th Amendment? Madison says so. He says so real explicitly. This is the smoking gun on July 19th at the Philadelphia Convention. He says, in principle, my friend, my friend James Wilson is right. You know, we should really have direct election. But there's one difficulty, however, of a serious nature attending an immediate choice by the people. The right of suffrage was much more diffusive in the northern than the southern states, and the latter could have no influence in the election on the score of the Negroes. The substitution of electors obviated this difficulty and seemed on the whole to be liable to the fewest objections. In other words, the problem with direct national election is the North's going to win because the South doesn't let lots of people vote because they're enslaved. But if instead we have an electoral college, Virginia can count her slaves, albeit with a three-fifths discount, whether she lets them vote or not. And that's why we need an electoral college. In the elections of 1796 and 1800, you've got a northerner against a southerner, John Adams against Thomas Jefferson, and it's a sharp north-south affair. And in 1800, the three-fifths margin is the margin of victory. You take away those extra three-fifths from the south, and John Adams wins the election of 1800. So after 1800, it's clear to anyone who has eyes that slavery is an important part of the whole system, just as it's clear to us today that, that Florida, there were lots of interesting things going on 
going on, you see, in, in, in Florida, for example. Um, so, um, uh, and indeed, in the uh, debates about the 12th Amendment, Northerners complained about just this fact. So, um, so Professor Dahl has a very powerful critique of the effect of slavery in general in the Constitution, and I just wanted to deepen it by suggesting it's even linked to the Electoral College in ways that that today make no sense at all. But that's why we got it in Philadelphia. That's why we kept it rather than compl- uh, and just tinkered with it in the 12th Amendment. Now, um, I actually think we're not stuck with it today. There are ways, um, and this has nothing to do with amending the Constitution, whether within Article 5 or, or in some other way. Without a constitutional amendment, it's actually possible today for us to contract around the Electoral College in manner not that different for example, than how many states contracted uh, around the um, state legislative selection of senators uh, prior to the 17th Amendment. They had beauty contest elections where people voted in a technically non-binding way for their, uh, the person that they would prefer to be senator. This began as early, really, as a practical matter as the Lincoln-Douglas debates in the 1850s. And that basically that model was a way in which um, de facto, you had direct election of senators, even though um, legally the state legislature had to ratify those choices. There are ways today that state legislatures, if they wanted, could say, we will give our electors in the state of New Jersey to the person not who wins the New Jersey race, but who wins the national race. And New Jersey doesn't have to do this on its own. A bunch of other states could do it as well. And together... Without a constitutional amendment, states could, if they wanted, pledge to give their electors to the person who wins, in effect, a national beauty contest rather than the the, the state race. There's even a way in which the candidates, the presidential and vice presidential candidates, could get up on the Jim Lair hour and promise that they would abide by the result of a national vote count rather than the electoral count and make that stick. I don't want to go into all the details right here because my time has expired, but if you're interested in this, you, you can find the details in a website called FindLaw, F-I-N-D-L-A-W dot com. Um, but both of these points look at state constitutions and think about really the, the democratic defects of the Electoral College historically and by comparison to the governorships of states as well as by appeal to the rest of the world and, um, and just the pure democratic principle of one person, one vote. These are both things that, that Professor Dahl's really interesting book got me thinking about in deeper ways and, I, and beginning that com- democratic conversation among his fellow citizens that I think Professor Dahl wants to invite. So thank you very much. Now, it's been clear that Robert Dahl, by his writings and his example, has been teaching us what civil discourse in a democracy is all about. And this book is another example in that long list of lessons that we've learned from Professor Dahl. Uh, But I want to begin with a quarrel with him. Uh, If it's true, and it surely is, that there are things that the framers could not possibly have known, about our situation, it is equally true that there are things that we may have forgotten that they knew, (laughs) not the least of which is something about the art of making constitutions, in which they had enormous practice, in which Americans across the board had enormous practice in 1787, and which we have little or no practice in. 
one of the Jefferson could happily say in seventeen days that we ought to sort of periodically revise the Constitution and involve people. Madison and the forty ninth paper is a little more hesitant about that one. Uh, but uh, Madison doesn't disagree that in 1787 it might have worked. Uh, Americans have experience in writing constitutions. No one in his right mind would evoke the American people today to write a constitution <laughs> without considerable hesitancy. Uh, the, uh, the, as I had occasion to remark over the weekend, uh, Americans know they have rights. Uh, they're just not sure what they are uh, or, or why they should want them. Uh, the, uh, uh, I do share, by the way, Professor Dahl, uh, and this is, by the way, to point to an obvious area that I want to explore, which is the centrality of political culture and democratic life, a point uh, which Professor Dahl uh, gives good and appropriate attention to. Uh, because American political culture is a part of what the Constitution became and a critical part of what it is. So I'm going to spend a little less time talking about institutions, partly because Professor Amar and Professor Waldron uh, are uh, quite, uh, quite adequate experts to address those institutions. I do want to introduce a caveat, by the way. That the argument about the example of state constitutions in relation to the Electoral College doesn't work. And it doesn't work because the 14th Amendment constrains state constitutions. States can no longer have federal representation in, this, in their upper houses. Uh, and secondly, one state, Georgia, used to have an Electoral College, uh, but it can't anymore. Uh, the uh, states are constrained by the 14th Amendment in a way that... Um, Fortunately or unfortunately, the federal constitution isn't. So we can't really uh, use that as a, uh, as a legitimate example comparison uh, on these grounds. Uh, but what I want to, ar to argue, uh, more importantly, at least for my purposes, uh, is that one of the, from the beginning, there were two conflicting theories in the United States about the nature and role uh, of democracy. And that in some ways that dialogue has dropped out of our, or below the horizon of our political consciousness in a way that makes it difficult for us to take up the kind of challenge that Professor Dahl offers us. Madison, as Dahl points out, was probably among the framers the most devoted to what he called the Republican principle of majority rule. And he got more devoted as time went on. I, the more he encountered Southern nullifiers, the more majoritarian he got. Uh, but at no point did Madison or any of his colleagues really suggest that democratic government is a goal. The goal of government in all its forms, and if you've read the Declaration closely, you'll recognize that the Declaration is agnostic about the forms of government. Government in all its forms, is it legitimate government, is devoted to preserving and enhancing the liberty of the individual. As Madison says in the 10th Federalist Paper, the preservation of the diversity in the faculties of men is the first object of government. Democracy, in that sense, is a means to liberty. And it's consistent with that that Madisonian democratic theory de-emphasizes voice, the ability of citizens to speak and deliberate about politics, which to the ancients was the central institution of democracy in favor of a vote, the emphasizing reason in favor of an act of will. By the way, many of you will know that for Aristotle, voting for officers is an aristocratic institution, not a democratic one, since we presumably at least try to select people who are the best, although you would never know it by the people we, in fact, select. <laughs> uh, the, uh, uh, this, the fact, by the way, that, that Madisonian theory de-emphasizes voice in favor of vote is a matter in contemporary form of considerable concern to, to Professor Dahl. 
uh, because the, the quality of our access to speech uh, and of public speech in America plays uh, a good part of his critique uh, of contemporary life. Now, this, this theory that essentially says democracy is a means was not the only theory around. There were plenty of people who argued that self-government is an end, not a means to rights so much as a reason for rights, and who are concerned not so much with preserving our diversity, uh, but with giving due regard to our common nature. Uh, that theory, I think, was stated uh, most eloquently in American history uh, in Lincoln's great cadences at Gettysburg, in which Lincoln stands the founding on its head and makes the founding conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. A moment's reflection on the Declaration will tell you that Jefferson had it the other way around. Uh, as Tocqueville suspected, on the other hand, that second voice uh, that sees self-government as a reason for rights has attenuated with time. It was planted for Tocqueville in the habits of the heart, and as Dahl rightly uh, argues, the habits of the heart are likely to be decisive in the short term, and critical in all kinds of ways in the way that they, they adapt our institutions. But if our habits are not sustained by and supported by law, over the long term, those habits will change. I will now instance a text I rarely cite, uh, John Locke's version of the state of nature, in which the decencies of the state of nature, unsustained by law, begin to erode at the margins until people are forced to construct a judge to sustain them. Uh, the laws in America, built according to the theory that democracy is a means to rights, have eroded the understanding uh, that self-government is a reason for rights. Uh, I first came to a really clear understanding of this when I first came to Livingston College at Rutgers. This is even before Patrick Deneen was there, which tells you it's a really <laughs> uh, the, and this Livingston was a very self-consciously radical and experimental place, very full of itself. Livingston, navel of the universe, source of the, you know, uh, the revolution. And we said to, to, to students, uh, my, not me, but my colleagues, you know, design institutions for, for governance of the place, whatever institutions you want. Student, the students design for student government not simply a system of checks and balances, uh, but a system of checks and balances which mirror the theories of John C. Calhoun. <laughs> Every ethnic group had its caucus, and each caucus had to have a quorum of members present before the legislature could meet at all. Uh, the great political issue, by the way, was whether people who used drugs and who could claim to have altered their consciousness were part of a new fourth world. It, was the <laughs> uh, the, uh, uh, it won't surprise any of you to know that given this wonderful machinery, the check and balance system worked so well that the Livingston student government never met at all. Uh, the, uh, uh, this is radicalism, by the way. Uh, uh, in which uh, self-government self is clearly subordinated to the idea of protection of diversity and protection of individual rights. Madison in our public speech wins. And that's why I think that if, um, if most Americans were confronted with Professor Dahl's uh, criteria of democratic performance, most of them might come up with a different verdict than he does. Uh, they, would be, they probably would be upset that America ranks relatively low among the democracies uh, in voter turnout. They might even be a little disturbed that we rank relatively low in, the, in women's representation in the legislature. 
But my guess is that an awful lot, if not most Americans, and certainly a lot more than I'm comfortable with, would not be bothered at all by the fact that the United States ranks relatively low among welfare state uh, as, uh, among welfare states, that it ranks relatively low in social expenditures, that it ranks relatively low in energy efficiency. George Bush is, after all, president of the United States. Uh, that it ranks relatively high in economic inequality and so forth. To most people, these are not bothersome, or to, to, to a lot of people at least, these are not bothersome. They are content with one of the places we rank relatively high, relative economic success, and there are large parts of the country that do not seem over-troubled by the fact that we rank really high in the rate of incarceration of our citizens. This is another way of saying that liberal democracy, with its emphasis on individual rights and private attainments, in critical ways has silenced the democratic voice. Uh, and the re-articulation of that voice is crucial to democratic life in America. I entirely agree with Professor Dahl that Buckley versus Vallejo, uh, with its, with its uh, accentuation of the, the weight of money in our political life, uh, is one of, those, uh, 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 one of those marks of our contemporary constitution that we have to somehow get rid of. Uh, I am charmed by the argument in Buckley, by the way, that, that money is speech, and maybe it's just because I'm Irish, that it occurs to me that if money is speech, why isn't bribery protected by the First Amendment? <laughs> because bribery, after all, would have at least the additional merit of affecting a kind of modest social redistribution, <laughs> which the current system of funneling money into the mass media really doesn't. Well, leave that aside. <laughs> One last comment before I quit. Uh, I also want to amplify Professor Dahl's concern with inequality by reference to an issue which was argued at the founding that we seem to have lost track of, which is the great question of whether a wage earner can have the independence, forget the leisure for a minute, can have the independence to be a free and self-governing citizen. Governor Morris, my favorite among the framers, because you know, Morris had that wonderful port wine rhetoric. Morris said, it is a universal rule in human affairs that he who pays is master. <laughs> a little more decorously, Hamilton said, a power over a man's subsistence amounts to a power over his will. You can't trust a wage earner, right? And this, uh, this is also part, uh, if you don't like uh, uh, more or less 18th century conservatives, of Jefferson's emphasis on the yeoman farmer, who could presumably be independent because he would own his own land. Uh, but since we became a society of wage earners, it's fortunate for us that later on Jefferson had second thoughts. What struck him was that what made America different was the fact that wage earners had the confidence that they could find in the society jobs adequate to support themselves and their families and their old age. What mattered, of course, to Jefferson was their, the confidence and the security that they could find such employment. Because knowing that you could find a job made you independent of any particular job. It freed you from the dominion of the master. Uh, the, uh, it isn't, by the way, that these jobs were particularly affluent. As Jefferson and the framers knew, affluent jobs that are insecure breed couriers and not citizens. The, uh, uh, this is to say that, by the way, we keep graduate students and junior faculty impecunious uh, so that they will be free. 
But no one, by the way, Jefferson is emphasizing that, that in a society of wage earners, it's virtually impossible to talk about democratic citizenship without secure employment at socially adequate wages. No one looking at America today would say we have that. Kristen Donnelly Grimsley of the Washington Post once said under the contemporary uh, economic dispensation, the workplace has become leaner, or may have become leaner, but it has definitely become meaner, and no one has to tell academics about that. Uh, looking to some way in which we can revitalize political speech uh, and our own security uh, as the basis uh, in economic life as the basis for citizenship may have abilities to strengthen our political culture in ways that would eventually enable us to look seriously at the Constitution. to be back here. I think if Fred and Robbie had hoped that there would be critical lambasting of this <laughs> book, they've made a serious miscalculation. <laughs> uh, Professor Dahl is not going to get a fight from me either. Uh, I'm honored uh, to be commenting on this book by our foremost theorist of democracy. I find the argument uh, clear, invigorating, um, in the, first, in, the, in, in, the, in the, the clarity with which it scrutinizes the Constitution, but also in the directness of Professor Dow's emphasis on political equality. As he said today, not equality in every sphere, but equality of political influence, equality of political resources, as the ideal essence of democracy, and as the ideal on the basis of which we ought to evaluate where possible, uh, evaluate and where possible, reform and rehabilitate uh, the American Constitution. I am, of course, particularly interested in the comments that he makes about the relationship between political equality and liberty, and also between political equality and individual rights, and those who dreaded that this would be yet another Waldron discussion of judicial review will also <laughs> not be disappointed. <laughs> uh, as I say, I, I am particularly interested in Professor Dow's comments about the relation between equality in this sense and liberty, between political equality and individual liberty, a relationship which is made problematic according to a tradition of American thought or thinking about institutions in America, um, that, uh, a tradition that began with de Tocqueville. De Tocqueville, Professor Dow asserts, raised the possibility that the very equality of condition that makes democracy possible also carries dangers to liberty. I think one of the great virtues of this little book is the answer that it provides in response to that very, very conventional uh, apprehension that people have. I don't know whether uh, Professor Dahl is like John Stuart Mill in, I hope he is, in regretting in a way that the that democracy in America gave such currency to the slogan, the tyranny of the majority. Um, uh, Mill's observation in one of his reviews of the, the first volume of de Tocqueville's work was that one of the few deplorable effects of de Tocqueville's work was its popularization of the phrase, the tyranny of the majority, a phrase that Mill said was susceptible of a Tory application. He said the phrase was forthwith adopted into the conservative dialect and trumpeted by Sir Robert Peel in his Tamworth oration, 
when his bookseller's advertisements have since frequently reminded us he earnestly requested the perusal of the book by each and all of his audience. And we believe it has since been the opinion of the country gentleman, this is still John Stuart Mill, it has since been the opinion of the country gentleman that Monsieur de Tocqueville is one of the pillars of conservatism and that his book is a definitive demolition of America and democracy on this ground. Uh, now, this is Mill writing, of course, uh, considerably earlier than his argument in On Liberty. This is Mill in 1840. But it is um, just worth pondering the significance of that a little bit. It's important also to mention, I think, that there are several strands in the Tocquevillian apprehension about the tyranny of the majority in a modern democratic society that actually have little directly to do with political equality. One is uh, de Tocqueville's emphasis on the fact that the main danger would arise from the, uh, from the growth and the pervasiveness of an administrative state, which he thought didn't exist in America in the time that he wrote. If that were ever allied with majoritarian democracy, then he said you'd have a recipe for tyranny, but it would be you'd need both of them together, not simply uh, government by democracy sentiment. And the other one was, of course, his emphasis on, as Mill emphasized, the tyranny of the majority through social means rather than political means, its impact on freedom of individual thinking, its impact on culture, its impact on, ability, on individuals' ability to think for themselves, that had nothing to do with political equality or it has a byproduct relationship to political equality. But it's, it's a kind of pervasiveness that you find in the culture rather than in the, in the, in the rule that governs the, the uh, operation of the political system. Apart from... Those two themes, it's also worth emphasizing that there is no necessary suggestion in de Tocqueville's argument, and certainly none in Professor Dahl's, that political democracy is somehow more inimical to liberty than other forms of governance. I mean, the theme of democracy in America in Chapter 15, Volume 1, or Book 1, is that political democracy has no less potential for tyranny. Yeah? or that whatever potential for tyranny it has is not mitigated by the fact that it would be a majoritarian form of tyranny. But nowadays we use the phrase tyranny of the majority as though it were the only form of tyranny that we have to fear in the modern world. And as though any institutional device that can prevent that from happening is worth considering without considering the tyrannical effects that that device itself might have. So those are sort of general points. Now, I think... Even so, Professor Dahl also wants to contest even the most modest of de Tocqueville's formulations, for he thinks, contrary to Tocqueville's assertion, that there is, in fact, something inherent in a regime organized around the principle of political equality that is, in fact, more inherently protective of liberty than other forms of governance. As an ideal, Professor Dahl says, in order for a political system to organize itself effectively around political equality, it has to already secure certain liberties, rights, and opportunities. It can't, as, you, know, you can't, as it were, keep faith even with political equality without doing that. That's true as an ideal, he says on page 137, and it's moderately true of the way political equality is implemented in practice. As a matter of fact, such societies that pay serious service to this ideal do tend to secure a wide array of uh, political rights, opportunities, and resources that, and, and, and liberties that are uh, important for securing respect for individuals. 
They do that not for the sake of individual rights as such, but for the sake of, the, of guaranteeing the equality that democracy presupposes. Now, the point here is not that this protection of individual rights is inevitable, as a matter of fact, or that it's something that we can take for granted. In, being, in associating with political equality, we are still associating it with a norm or an ideal, yeah? albeit one that does tend actually to be honored in the political process. Professor Dow's point, I take it, and I agree with him, is that we are not, as de Tocqueville, or as some interpreters of de Tocqueville might have thought, dealing here with a conflict of political ideals. We're dealing here with a substantial congruence of political ideals, that the, the ideal of political equality is actually congruent with many of the individual liberties that are supposed to be threatened by it. So that any energy devoted to the pursuit of the one will in fact amount to energy devoted to the pursuit and protection of the other. We mustn't exaggerate, of course. There may not be perfect congruence. Some of the rights and liberties that we treasure are relatively independent, even as ideals, from the ideal of political equality, I think. For example, freedom of worship, or some of the religious freedoms. Uh, you, you, you can construct a sort of a case connecting the two, but it does tend to become rather threadbare. But um, nevertheless, there is substantial overlap and substantial congruence between the ideal of protecting individual rights and the ideal of protecting and promoting political equality. Well, as I say, I agree with all of this, and there's not, you're not going to get a fight from me uh, about this. I do want to develop the point, however, in a couple of directions that go slightly differently from those in which Professor Dahl develops them. And the first point I want to make, and this is a point I developed in Chapter 10 of Law and Disagreement. The congruence between political equality or between the rights associated with democracy and other rights is, I think, symmetrical. It's a two-way street. It works from both ends. It's a bi bilateral congruence. Our theory of rights, when we value respect for the individual, implies or connotes a reasonably elevated view of ordinary men and women as morally responsible beings, capable of exercising the choices that their rights allocate to them, capable of using and thinking about those rights in a way that is reasonably sensitive, although not unerringly so, and not, as it were, uniformly so, but reasonably sensitive to the similar rights of others, capable in principle of reasonably discerning the limits on the rights that they can claim in relation to the rights of others. I don't think our theory of individual rights would have anything like the currency or force that it has if we did not have that reasonably optimistic view of the moral powers, the sense of justice, if you like, associated with the ordinary right bearer. Now, if we believe that, then it ill behoves us to describe exactly the same creatures, exactly the same persons as sort of wolfish predators whenever they're suddenly confronted with a ballot box. Mm -hmm. As though in the ordinary exercise of their rights, they are morally responsible beings, but give them a ballot, allow them the opportunity for tyranny of the majority, and they turn themselves into a predatory mob. If ordinary men and women with armed with a vote and armed collectively with majority rule are predators, then they are not the sort of beings of whom individual rights could plausibly be uh, associated. If they are the sort of beings of who, uh, to whom individual rights are plausibly attributed, then they cannot be the predatory. So I think there is that sort of symmetry 
not perfect, but that symmetry between the conception of man connoted uh, in the, uh, the theory of individual rights and the conception of man connoted in the theory of democracy. The second point, and this really, I guess, is the closest I'll come to a criticism. I don't necessarily think that the congruence between individual rights generally and the rights implicit in political equality, I don't necessarily think that that congruence should mitigate or diminish our concern about judicial power in a modern republic or about what we sometimes delicately call the counter-majoritarian difficulty. And here, as I say, I want to part company with Professor Dahl and with John Hardili, with whose position he broadly identifies himself uh, in a footnote uh, towards the end of the book. I mean, I'm, I'm parting company here with a very, with a, with a, with, a, with a, uh, an account whose general character I find very sympathetic. I've been long impressed since I read Democracy and its Critics, for example, with the, the, the account of judicial power given by Professor Dahl with the suggestion that there is an inverse ratio between political equality and the, the scope of the power of the quasi-guardians uh, in the courts of our individual rights. And I believe that his comments in this book on judicial legislation, on the judiciary taking it upon themselves to determine national policy, his critical comments on that and his account of the antipathy between that and democratic ideals is very important. It's as important as anything in the book, um, I believe. But let's be clear about the counter-majoritarian difficulty. Most people start from the, the fact, which is a fact, that the United States Constitution is, in a number of important respects, a very abstract, vague, and indeterminate document which does not decisively settle all of the issues to which it speaks. But I begin, and I think we should begin, from a slightly different premise. Any society committed to respect for individual rights faces a number of important, well-understood, well-defined, and far-reaching choices about how to conceive of those rights and how to conceive of the protection they merit. Any liberal society faces those choices, whether it has a constitution like the United States or not. They face choices, for example, and I don't mean sort of high-flown philosophical choices, but far-reaching practical choices. Choices, let me give you a couple of examples, about the relationship between anti-discrimination laws on the one hand and affirmative action on the other hand. They face choices about how to define and understand religious liberty. Is it freedom from adverse impact on your religious practice or is it freedom from intentional aimed, deliberate impact on your religious practice. They face choices about rules of criminal procedure, rules about police behavior and, and interrogation. Are these rules to be enforced on a disciplinary basis against the police, or are they, are they to be enforced with an exclusionary rule, which will have an impact on how easy it is to uphold the rights of other citizens in relation to offenses? Now, these are problems that every liberal society on earth has to face, and every liberal society on earth has to find means and decision procedures for settling them. The positions here, the options, are well understood. They are discussed endlessly by philosophers, political theorists, uh, theorists of public policy, journalists, and so on. And uh, those options can be set out and debated without reference, without a breath of reference, if you like, to the United States 
constitution and its 18th century calligraphy. Now, it's true that the United States Constitution does not settle those issues definitively. It's also true that if you blur your eyes a little bit, a lot of what's in the United States Constitution might be thought to have a bearing on those issues. As a result of the fact that the United States Constitution might be thought to have a bearing on those issues, we have evolved a mode of settling them that consists in majority voting among the justices of our high courts. That's actually a reason why it's misleading to call this the counter-majoritarian difficulty. Majoritarianism all the way down, it's only a a difference of constituency. It's an issue about political equality. But we have decided that because the Constitution has a slight bearing on these issues, even though everybody who acknowledges that, or among the people who acknowledge that, there is a wild disagreement as to what that bearing is, and to what its tendency is. But because the United States Constitution has a bearing on these issues, these issues will be settled by judicial voting rather than by ultimately civic voting. And so you get the familiar array of decisions in Miranda and in Dickerson, in the <coughs> Sherbet and Smith and City of Burney cases, in the cases that are percolating through about um, affirmative action and so on. We have these watershed issues, well-defined choices that any liberal society must confront. We have the Constitution not settling them. We have the Constitution nevertheless having a kind of bearing on them, but a a controversial bearing, an uncertain and contested bearing. And we have a rule that the court decides. And I agree with Professor Dow that that is a serious derogation from political equality in the terms of our basic settlement. Now, I believe that none of this goes away. (coughs) None of this evaporates when the difficulties and the choices that we face are choices about the rights which constitute democracy. (coughs) That is, we disagree also about political equality. We disagree about what it entails. We disagree about things like proportional representation. We disagree about things like campaign finance. Citizens have well-defined views on these matters. There is national debate on these matters. And the fact that these are now constitutive norms of the political system does not make them an exception to the proposition that there is an affront to political equality in having them settled by voting among judges rather than voting among individuals. It does seem to me that that the the difficulty doesn't go away. And so I am, I mean, inclined, therefore, to dissent a little bit from the suggestion on page 153 of the book, which is the only concession that Professor Dahl is prepared to make, or one of only two concessions that Professor Dahl is prepared to make to uh, judicial guardianship, that a Supreme Court should have the authority to overturn federal laws and administrative decrees that uh, seriously impinge on any of the fundamental rights that are necessary to the existence of a democratic political system. Rights to express one's views freely, rights to assemble, to vote, to form, and to participate in political organizations, and so on. But those issues are no exception to the general rule that we face watershed choices in these, that these choices are faced by us irrespective of having the particular constitution that we do and that it is generally understood in democratic theory to be part of the principle of political equality that we will um, deal with these issues together. 
Professor Dow also suggests, and this is the last point that I want to make, that maybe there is a role for the court on issues of federalism, where it will patrol the boundaries between the legitimate actions accorded to the states and the legitimate actions taken by the central government. But once again, I want to apply the same logic. A modern society, having grown from its 18th century roots, faces very serious choices about the nature of the federalism that we now want. We face very serious choices about the kind of federation we want to have, given that we now have a modern economy rather than a sort of a uh, white supremacist economy based on agriculture or whatever in uh, 1787. Congress legislates expressing one particular view of that federalism, perhaps in cases involving the commerce, the power to regulate interstate commerce. The court has a different view. Again, since the society, any federation faces this challenge, how should we understand our federalism in the modern world? The question arises, why should that be settled by a court? When the Constitution doesn't definitively determine an answer, but nevertheless the Constitution has some vague but contestable bearing upon it. You may not want to call it democracy, you may want to call it popular sovereignty, but the same principle of political equality applies. When the people disagree about the nature of their association, it seems to me it is not for that disagreement to be resolved by voting among this minuscule subset of them. I hope that can be construed as a tribute to the book. It certainly <laughs> I wonder if there may not be some questions that the okay. panelists would like to put to them. George K. Uh, Professor Dahl, on page 153 of your book, uh, which uh, was cited by Jeremy Wall, uh, you defend traditional views as desirable to settle disputes between states and the federal government, and then to defend uh, a number of rights, especially speech, assembly, and voting. You imply that speech and assembly are essentially uh, political rights. You then say the courts shouldn't move too far away from these areas and should instead leave other matters to the political branches. Now, my orientation is the question not how democratic is the U.S. Constitution, but how constitutional has the U.S. Constitution been for the last 200 years? I would say the, def the deficiencies are primarily constitutional and not majoritarian. The relevant deficiencies. The majority would never have peacefully abolished slavery or legal segregation, or some other radical encroachments on human dignity. My question is, my orientation is, how strong has been the recognition of rights by the ensemble of US institutions, courts included? It is not always a pretty picture, and I think it grows ever less pretty the greater the pressure to recognize rights uh, when things get tough. With that in mind, I ask, 
I ask you, Professor Dahl, do you mean ideally, ideally, to exclude such areas from judicial review as due process of law, amendments 4, 5, 6, 8, and 14, or relevant parts of 14, the concept of privacy, the concept of religious rights, and non-political speech and non-political association? You know, those are quite valid uh, questions. Uh, let me uh, respond to one comment first that you uh, made, that uh, the um, majority would never have peacefully abolished slavery. I don't know what the empirical foundation of that statement is. The fact is that the majority was never in a position to abolish slavery because the minority made quite clear, the Southern minority made quite clear that they would not permit the abolition of slavery, and hence it reached a point of secession as their solution to the fear that if the, uh, uh, if the West <laughs> should become a state after state, free states, that they would reach a point at which it might be constitutionally possible to abolish slavery. That was one of the major reasons, if I read this period of history correctly, for which the southern states decided that secession was the only way out. It was their fear of future majorities created by the expansion of the United States and states that would be overwhelmingly free farming states. Hence, the capacity to pass a constitutional amendment abolishing slavery. That was what it drifted off. And I think it's myself, uh, the proposition that the majority would not have uh, peacefully abolished slavery, uh, unless by peacefully you mean that they could not do it peacefully because of the military resistance of the South or, or secession, but if you mean the majority would not have done so peacefully through ultimately a constitutional amendment, I think that's rather dubious. I think they probably would have. I mean the majority of the people, as in 1860, the majority of enfranchised people, as of 1860, you can't exclude the South. There was no majority sentiment for the abolition of slavery. Lincoln himself only got, as we know, 39% of the popular vote. Yes, all that I'm right. saying, uh, yours, it's, I thought, was a broader statement using the word never. The majority would never have. But uh, what I'm saying is it was precisely the fear that they would, in due time, majority, there would be a majority who would abolish slavery, that uh, the, the seeing that future, uh, the South Carolina followed by the others, had led uh, the route down secession. Whereupon Lincoln believed, even though he opposed slavery as immoral, he believed that his obligation under the Constitution was to prevent secession, and that he would therefore have, if necessary, go to war to uh, prevent that. And, uh, the, um, now, I think the questions that, that, that uh, Professor Walter and, and that you and I'm sure others have raised uh, about what are, the bound, what are the appropriate boundaries for a Supreme Court, I find those troubling questions also, and I don't have the sense of, a, of an entirely satisfactory <coughs> answer. <clears throat> the, 
uh, the, uh, I, I, as I make clear, I think, in, in the book, and as you correctly uh, said, I have no problems uh, in a country committed to uh, democracy, uh, therefore democratic rights, uh, maybe that's for I have no problems whatsoever with a a body independent <laughs> uh, uh, deciding on questions of that kind in order to maintain the, this fundamental body of rights that are necessary then for democracy to be maintained. I become troubled when the court moves beyond that. And I become troubled because while I can defend the legitimacy of a democratic ideology, you can call you can elevate it to philosophy, uh, I cannot defend the role of a court in deciding on um, five to four on the basis of their ideologies, fundamental questions of public policy. Uh, which the court has done. And the history of the court is not a pretty history, from my point of view, uh, at all, uh, on the question of fundamental rights uh, over over the long history of, of the court. So I would like to raise to the threshold of discussion some questions about whether there may not be a way. Oh, I'll go back one, one minute, if I may. Uh, over 40 years ago, I regret to say it was that long ago, I published an article uh, on the Supreme Court as a policymaker in which the evidence up to then showed, A, that the Supreme Court often necessarily engaged in important policymaking. It often did so damaging or coming down on the side uh, against the rights of citizens who most, or people, they weren't citizens often, who most needed this. Uh, protection. It was, as I said a moment ago, uh, not at all a, a, a pretty history. Uh, but the counter-majoritarian difficulty I suggested then, if you looked then, and I don't think it would be true anymore, and I'd like to see some further research on this, uh, was partly resolved by virtue of the fact that um, the average, uh, on the average, one Supreme Court justice up to that point, remember this was uh, this way back in 1959, uh, left the court every five years. That meant if you had a dominant majority coalition uh, over a period of time, you could be quite sure of two things. One is that they could pack the court, and they did. They did. The history of the court is, is one of court packing by the dominant majority. And the struggle right now over the possible future of the judicial system is, brings this into such utter clarity, it can hardly be doubted. It's an ideological question of who's going to decide these basic issues of, of uh, public uh, policy. Uh, and and the, the, uh, the, uh, uh, well, I'll, I'll just finish this up. I won't further comment on this. It may well be, oh, the other part that I wanted to make is that also a very substantial number of the cases in which the Supreme Court had declared legislation unconstitutional, by my finding then, anyway, <clears throat> had subsequently, the Congress had subsequently found a way around the decision uh, to make constitutional uh, what 
the court had declared was unconstitutional over the next four or eight years if you had this steady majority. Now, uh, I guess to go back to this, this basic point, if cases come to the Supreme Court that are ideologically loaded and inevitably so, then is there some way that we can have the court deciding those cases uh, that are broader than their ideological commitments? I don't, I fear there may not be, and I don't mind it if their ideological commitment is to the maintenance of democratic rights and liberties. I do begin to worry about it very seriously if their commitment is to maintain uh, some particular uh, ideological uh, uh, posture, uh, which is that of the, uh, perhaps of the, of the, of the existing uh, majority or some previous uh, majority. So, but I don't feel, I must say, and uh, I'm sensitive, I don't feel that I've got an entirely satisfactory answer to this. And I'd like to see more, including, I must say, I raise the want to raise the question for further discussion. Is it our lifetime appointments? The other democratic countries with Supreme Courts with the power of judicial review don't have lifetime appointments. So we and the 50 states. And the 50 states. There you go. There you go. Very good. Very good. Thank you. Now, I've seen a number of hands. Um, yeah, that has isn't that not one, one I've seen most recently is a gentleman in the black sweater or jersey or you. Yes. <laughs> David Erdos. Um, I suppose speaking as a, an outsider from the American policy, the, the common thread uh, coming through all the uh, contributions has been that America uh, doesn't seem to be able to look at the Constitution of the United States objectively, and yet you know, it seems to fetishize the document and, and, and not look at it rationally. And actually this links both the, the democratic arguments and the constitutional arguments in the sense that, uh, you know, we, we don't even weigh these things up properly, we just sort of uh, worship it as if it's some sort of god. Um, and so the, the, the question which I might pose, again, as a sort of European outsider, is that to the extent that Professor Dahl sees the constitution and the judiciary which, which enforces it or, or attempts to enforce it as having failed to uh, maintain fundamental human rights, particularly against you know, minorities, including blacks and slavery, and all, you know, might actually be related to the fact that it's interpreting this rather fetishized document. And if I absolutely agree that we need to look at, at international examples, and if we do so, then I think we'll, we'll find countries which, which first of all, look at, look at constitutions more rationally, and secondly, I can't see how, and also might illuminate this distinction between constitutional democracy. I mean, I can't see how policies like Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, Cyprus, could have moved with the speed they did towards recognition of the right of privacy, the rights of minorities, mm -hmm. without the European Court of Human Rights, um, and without adopting these rather general principles at the level of a democracy, uh, and then proceeding to have them interpreted by another institution. So I suppose my questions are, number one, do you think that this is an American exception? Is the problem with the American Constitution is the constitutionalism, and it's the fetishization of a document? 
And number two, if you look at the international experience, hasn't the general move uh, been towards, again, New Zealand, Australia, many, many polities, Canada, um, towards recognizing fundamental principles at the general level and then protecting them? And it has actually had a huge effect in providing fundamental basic human rights for, for minorities. And we're all in minorities at some stage, so eventually for everyone. Well, I think the answer to both of your questions is yes. <laughs> that uh, uh, I don't know this much about the details, but certainly my impression was to the uh, influence uh, of the uh, of the uh, of the European Court uh, and and the uh, uh, treaties accompanying it on the national judicial systems has been actually to extend and protect and, and rights. There is, it seems to me, some protection that is provided there against uh, serious abuse by the very diversity of that uh, community. There are limits, it seems to me, uh, beyond which it would be almost impossible for, for them to go, that, that res tend to restrain it more than I think in its long history the Supreme Court of the United States has been restrained. And I wish there were something like that that could be brought to bear on the Supreme Court, other than waiting uh, 20 years for a change in, 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 in the court. Fred, can I just say something yeah, sure. about this business of fetishization? I mean, I know what you mean, and, and sometimes I've um, suggested this criticism. But the fetishization of the Constitution in the United States is a tremendously enabling thing. I mean, it enables people to focus on their actual constitutional arrangements and really talk about them. It doesn't have... I mean, when people in England say that would be unconstitutional. It's uttered in sort of tones of silencing reproach as though somebody had urinated on the cricket pitch or <laughs> touched the queen before she touched them or whatever the, whatever the, whatever, whatever the rule is. And when you know, Norman Singer's Stevens says that this is a constitutional issue, it's in sort of tones of Burkean gravitas that I think um, certainly for a long, long time prevented any rational debate, partly because there wasn't a common object which could be viewed from a variety of perspectives. Now, I think you know the, the vocabulary, the text, does lead to certain sorts of fetishistic absurdity, but I wouldn't underestimate the great benefit to the American people of actually being able to have a, a common vocabulary to describe their political system. I mean, sorry, just quickly to come back. I mean, the European Convention of Human Rights is used as a common language, and it's far more explicit about what those rights are. And everyone knows that to the extent to which uh, we, we fetishize things in, in Britain, it tends to be utterly irrelevant. Um, did, you know, Peter Sissons on the BBC wear a black tie or not when he right. mummy died? And we constitution. had a lovely debate about right. this. It's rather right. sweet and quaint. But it means absolutely nothing. I think that's where all the specialisation should be left. <laughs> yeah, I make one just very brief yeah. uh, comment on the uh, fetishization, difficult word, of uh, the American Constitution. Um, that's we've, we've all agreed that that is, is certainly empirically the case. It's also empirically the case that if you probe a sample of, uh, of Americans about what's in the Constitution, uh, they don't know very much about it. The ignorance of Americans about the Constitution that they worship and that they think that the rest of the world has, uh, has, has worshipped is, is really quite extraordinary, including, including the Bill of Rights and what's in the Bill of Rights. So, the, so they uh, worship something. Uh, and believe that it is a, a uh, document beyond possibilities of serious change often, not even knowing what the content of it is. And if I could just say one thing, I think it connects with what Jeremy 
just said to distinguish between um, uh, having the Constitution in common and ceding a monopoly of interpretation to the Supreme Court. So I confess, and you heard me be quite critical of the Constitution, I always carry it with me. (laughs) I carry two precisely so that if someone else wants to ask me about it, I can give that person a copy and we can read together on terms of democratic equality and dialogue. And when ordinary ordinary citizens don't know what's in here, they actually betray the, the deep aspiration and structure, the reason it's so short is precisely so that it could be read by an ordinary citizen um, who is asked, of course, to to participate in the ratification 200 years ago, the amendment process over over the next 200 years. But because the court, I think, has increasingly asserted a monopoly of interpretive uh, competence and has translated some of the, the broad language about which we could democratically discuss, uh, disagree into quite highfalutin technical stuff um, with long-winded opinions, with many footnotes and 17 parts. That's precisely what actually has created a kind of distance between ordinary citizens and, um, and, and the document. So we could distinguish between respecting the Constitution and ceding this to the judiciary. If there's anyone here who has never seen a fetish, I hope they were looking closely because there were two well thumbed <laughs> fetishes that were branded. <laughs> raise, them, raise them again. Uh, fetish aside, I, I think it's a sign of a good discussion that hands are up everywhere and that, that uh, there are far more hands than there are minutes before six o'clock, which is the conventional. Hmm? Sure we can, but, we, but I, what I want to stress is that we're going to also uh, have another session tomorrow, and the person who just said we can go keep going, whose name is Reggie Cohen, rfcohen dot, at, at princeton.edu, <laughs> will provide box lunches for anyone who hasn't um, signed up for this and wants to come, and perhaps even has some copies of this book left. So I think I'll... I'll point way back there, one of the fellows of the Madison program. Uh, what about coercing uh, citizens into voting by making mandatory voting? Uh, perhaps you discussed that in your book, and that does seem to be one way to uh, bring about political democracy. Maybe not. What's your opinion about that? Why don't I, why don't I have, let's do a little bit of batching, give you a cue. And, May ask people to maybe hold a question to or assertion or whatnot to a couple of sentences, and then we'll see whether you can wrap this up for tonight, knowing that there'll be a follow-up tomorrow, and you and some of you can spend the day reading this book, uh, <laughs> Robbie. Oh, thank you, Fred. Uh, my question relates back to the second question from David, uh, and I was surprised at the answer, uh, Bob. Uh, you, you, you gave it a pretty much unqualified yes, and I don't see why you should say yes in view of the scope of your agreement with Jeremy. It looked to me like you, you disagreed with Jeremy only on uh, what, as a shorthand, I'll call the Elian point mm-hmm. uh, about the enforcement of rights and democratic participation mm-hmm. uh, and so forth. Uh, but when it came to the substantive rights that are the subjects of the logical uh, disagreement, uh, there you thought it was uh, not appropriate uh, for courts to intervene. Uh, now, of course, it all sounds 
very well when we say, well, gee, shouldn't uh, courts be enforcing people's actual rights or human rights? Everybody wants to say, well, however you can get those rights enforced, do it. But Jeremy's point is, as I understand it, that uh, reasonable, morally serious people disagree about the content of what are claimed to be fundamental rights, even if they agree that a certain uh, label uh, names a fundamental right, privacy, or rights of the minority, or whatever you have. There's disagreement among morally serious people uh, about that, which I think walks us right into the problem that Jeremy has about which polity will get to decide. Will it be nine people, five to four, or or how? Uh, we may be a little uh, deflected uh, if we travel in circles in which everybody tends to agree on what the fundamental rights are or what the meaning, say, of privacy is. But if we go beyond the somewhat narrow circles in which we we travel, we see that there's really a wide disagreement among morally serious people. So it seemed to me that it should have generated a, a, a more qualified yes and perhaps even a no. Uh, uh, perhaps so. The, the, the way that you have posed it, it seems to me, the, my uh, intuitive response to that is yes, insofar as these are questions on which morally serious people disagree and there's no way of avoiding uh, after all, uh, since the certainly since the, the uh, end of the 19th century, we uh, nearly all of us have come to the firm conclusion that moral propositions are highly contestable propositions. And the question then becomes one of who is to settle those if these are morally contestable. Uh, and I, in the end, would prefer to have them settled and this raises some questions of institutional innovation, to have them settled by a popularly elected body after, uh, uh, after discussion and debate and to have them settled by, uh, by five people with lifetime appointments out of nine on the Supreme Court. I have a grave distrust uh, given their history of their capacity uh, for doing so. Now, I said... This may require, in order for even myself to feel more confident about the outcome, might require some institutional innovations to make sure that there is the discussion that is necessary in order for a more informed uh, uh, public uh, to, to have reasonable decisions on it. But then I would rather trust on these questions that come down finally to, to debatable moral questions, I would rather place my trust there. These are matters of public policy. I'd rather place my trust there on the uh, uh, reasoned, if they have the opportunity to do so, reflections of ordinary people and their representatives than I would in a non-elected body like the Supreme Court. You Way back I, I, it's okay. I, I, I so enjoyed the contributions of, of all the panelists and Professor Dahl, and I was hoping that you might be able to to help me with a, a question that I really struggle with in any sort of egalitarian framework. We, I think everyone here is committed strongly uh, to promoting equality, uh, but my my own problem in thinking through 
this issue is when, when one tries to implement the norm in a political sense, um, particularly in the realm of, of social rights and such, or welfare rights, um, it seems that it, it necessitates a state that uh, there'd be a large concentration of power, and in the name of equality, you seem to be displacing um, power to, to the government and create an elitist system, which is uh, the judiciary is just an instance of that. And is there any way of overcoming this paradox, do you think, from, from theory to, to actually implementing it? The, uh uh, as to the second, you may be asking the wrong person. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, uh, but I, I want here, just very briefly, to call attention to a fundamental problem of the political life in all advanced democratic countries, and most notably in the United States. And it bears uh, indirectly on your question, uh, though I have no satisfactory answer to the problem I raise. We uh, uh, have known for some time now, I think, that there are two highly valuable decision-making systems uh, that advanced democratic countries have. One is this quasi-democratic process that we call democracy, which years ago I tried to called polyarchy, <laughs> didn't ever become a household term. <laughs> the other one is some form of market economy, probably a capitalist market economy, basically uh, uh, privately owned uh, firms. Um, we value both of them. I won't go into the, 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 go into the details of that. It seems to me that while there are alternatives, <laughs> uh, undesirable alternatives to democracy, and there are alternatives to market capitalism, there are undesirable alternatives. And yet those two systems exist in constant tension and permanent irremediable tension. And the reason they exist in tension is that a, uh, a, a capitalist market economy inevitably generates inequality of Resources, resources of all kinds, any kind of resource you can think of, whether it is uh, knowledge or money or wealth, uh, influence uh, indirectly or whatever. And these can all be converted into political resources. And the, I, I think a problem that we need, we were under the illusion, or people were under the illusion for well over a century, that there was a big structural alternative out there that would solve the problem. Well, there wasn't. There wasn't, and right now there isn't. <laughs> and yet the tension between those two, the generation of political inequality, which may even reach a point, and here I'm going to be sound unduly pessimistic, it is conceivable to me that it could be ratcheted up to a point where it can't be ratcheted down again uh, in the distribution of inequalities generated by a capitalist market economy. I think, along with some other problems, which I won't take the time to go into, I think that's a very fundamental uh, problem that we need some new thinking about, since all of the old thinking, I think, turns out to have been substantially wrong. But, as I said at the beginning, I don't have a solution to that, except the tension is going to go on, and that's going to be 
permanent struggle, I think, to keep uh, both systems in reasonable harmony with one another. Can we take just one more? Patrick, will you be at lunch tomorrow? Good. Okay. Well, I'll let you do it. Because I've never answered the compulsory voting. Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, yes. Yes. I'm conflicted about compulsory voting. Uh, It's... uh, it's, I think people should also, <clears throat> and you could do this with compulsory voting, uh, in the ways of, 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 uh, of, of going to the polls, uh, compulsory, and then, uh, then essentially marking up the ballot. But I'm, I'm a little bit conflicted about forcing people to, to go to the polls uh, and vote, not because it would, it would dragoon the people into the polls who may be less confident than others. That's not what I'm worried about. But uh, that, too, is, it seems to me, can be a form of, 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 of protest. It can be uh, people saying something is going wrong or we don't want to, to appear. Uh, what I would like to see is to make that, uh, make that option of going to the polls or not going to the polls much more of a self-conscious option than now exists in the United States and elsewhere. They, and to some extent, compulsory voting would make that much more conscious of character. I think there are other ways of making that a self-conscious option. There is even now some very good research going on in my own university that, believe it or not, shows that what was known 50, 60, 70 years ago that door-to-door mobilization really does work <laughs> and that you could increase the turnout. <laughs> this is very good experimental work going on of uh, this kind by door-to-door campaigning of the old-fashioned uh, kind uh, can, can increase the amount of uh, turnout. And I would, uh, I'd like to see something like that take hold, I guess, before I resort to compulsory vote. Just one other point. There is a possibility one could have compulsory registration, which we uh, don't have, which yes. I think would certainly be a step. Yes. And as opposed only because it would increase the number of people Absolutely. voting for, for one side or the other. As, as, Jeremy, that seems to me is important. We, we are behind every other advanced democratic country in the, the nature of the difficulties we put in the way of registration. Yeah. Less than they used to be with the Voter Motor. The Voter Motor Act has changed that slightly, but still there is no other advanced country in which Registration becomes so, so difficult. And one other thing that could be done short of uh, mandatory voting is providing for a holiday on election day yes, so people exactly. who actually are uh, working people can yes. easily go without foregoing wages. Yes. Note that connected to the Electoral College, the Electoral College eliminates <laughs> an incentive that states would otherwise have to get their voters out because a state gets the same number of electoral votes whether a lot of people vote or a few people vote. If instead you actually had direct national election, each state would actually have some incentives to experiment in creative ways to try to get people out, maybe too much so, so that you know dead people come out and 16-year-olds come out. So you'd require some, uh, some, a federal framework, but, but it connects once again to the Electoral College. I think really I've got to take just one more as reactive as it is. Um, is democracy prior to rights? And if so, what is the foundation of our source of rights? I would have thought that, uh, that democracy depended on rights because rights ex- that express a certain uh, universal and uh, uh, 
uh, unalienable um, uh, sense of uh, dignity and worth in every person. So. Uh, let me uh, very briefly try to summarize my perspective on that. I think that a political equality rests upon two fundamental assumptions. One, one of the fundamental assumptions is a basic moral assumption that the rights of each uh, human being uh, and the interests of each human being are entitled to be equally well protected. Nobody's born into the world, from a moral point of view, privileged as to, as, as, as to their fundamental rights. That's a very basic moral position. You can't even have a moral discussion unless you make some kind of discussion uh, that kind. The second one is, second assumption is a, is a pragmatic and prudential uh, Assumption, which I think is based on a vast body of historical experience, that and it's John Stuart Mill again. That in the long run, nobody is better qualified among adults to protect their own interests than the persons themselves. Uh, the history of other people asserting that they were protecting the interests, whether it's women or black, blacks, African Americans, or whatever, is a deplorable bit of human history. They didn't take care of their interests. Uh, so that that is the basis. That is why those, those two grounds, one is an empirical judgment, one is a moral judgment, is why I believe that you have to have political equality. People have to have the opportunity to protect their own interests by engaging in, directly or indirectly, in the making of those policies that are going to, to uh, bear on them and their, their uh, fellows. And that implies, see here's where rights come in, uh, from my point of view, that implies in order to have a political system that would live up to that, that implies a whole body of fundamental rights that flow from this judgment. It is a mixture of prudential and moral uh, principles. If you take if you take that into account, you then say what rights are necessary if people are to have the uh, to, to be treated as equal in the in the political domain, and then you begin to get you begin to specify a set of, of rights, both from an ideal perspective. And uh, having perhaps thought it through from an ideal perspective, what those rights are. Such elementary rights as freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom, uh, freedom of expression, uh, free and fair elections if you move to that kind of system. You, and you move to that then to actual institutions, actual institutions, legal, uh, constitutional, uh, political institutions that then embody those rights. So, Unlike many others, I think, I see the fundamental ground of democracy, the notion, this notion of political equality, as itself implying a large body of very fundamental rights that are necessary to that itself. And that's a cornucopia <laughs> of rights, if you begin to uh, think about it. And it goes not from my point of view, it goes ultimately not only to rights and not only to the opportunities to exercise those rights, rights without opportunities or meaningless. It not only goes to, to, uh, to, 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 to duties, it goes to resources. If you have rights and you don't have the resources necessary to exercise those rights, the rights are meaningful. Now that's a very subversive uh, a picture of the Implication, ultimately, 
of this fundamental moral principle of, of human equality and the pragmatic, historically-based judgment that in the end, the only people who can be counted on, and they can't always be <laughs> to protect their own interests, are those people themselves given the opportunity to gain some information, some understanding of their interests, and to act on them through the political domain. Maybe that's the perspectives from Book 24. <laughs> thank, thank you very much. Uh, Remember, there will be a session for those. I was interested in what we see with the